may be seated. It's very crowded up here in the chancel. I feel, I feel a little cramped up here. Uh, our second reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 21. I will read verses 2 through 11. You can find it in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Hear the word of God. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen not one greater than John the baptizer. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, we ask uh, for your help this morning as we uh, prepare ourselves uh, for your second advent as we prepare for this season of Christmas Lord I ask that you would move toward us as we move toward you we've come here this morning from different places and we've gathered in this sanctuary uh, expecting to hear a word from you. And so we pray that you would speak a word of eternal truth for us this day. We pray that these words of Scripture, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit and are trustworthy and true, we pray that they might make sense to us this day. These favors we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
there is no one greater than John the baptizer. That's what Jesus said. And it's a rather extraordinary claim, and maybe it should even surprise us. I'm guessing that if I gave you a pop quiz before we read our Matthew passage this morning, and on that quiz there was only one question, who was the greatest of all humans? I'm guessing very few of you would have listed John the baptizer. Now, the way Jesus phrases this is a little tricky. He says, truly I say to you that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the baptizer, which means there could be other people tied for first place. But still, I don't know about you, but if I were making my list of the great people of all time, it would take me a long while before I would have gotten around to John the baptizer. And yet this is the claim that Jesus makes. No ordinary human being, no human born of woman is greater than John. So why does Jesus say this and what's the point that he's making? I want to begin with a quick review of who John was and how he fits into the larger story of Jesus, particularly uh, the story of the advent of Jesus. We first meet John in Luke chapter 1. He's not even born yet. His mother, Elizabeth, is past the age of fertility. She's childless. His father, Zechariah, is a priest in the temple. Both of them have been praying for a long time to have a child. And then one day, while Zechariah is burning incense in the temple, the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him that his wife's going to have a child. And the angel says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Yes, people are people even before they're born, and they can have the Holy Spirit in utero. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's the word of Gabriel to Zechariah there in the temple while he's burning the incense. And that's exactly what happens. Elizabeth, she's beyond the age of childbearing. She becomes pregnant. You'll remember that Elizabeth is a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Tradition calls these women cousins. John and Jesus are cousins, second cousins, I don't know what you'd call them, and they're both in utero at the same time, and John greets Jesus even before he's born. One day, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and as she comes into the house, John leaps in the womb. John and Jesus would have known each other growing up. We see a direct encounter between John and Jesus. When Jesus goes out to the Jordan River to be baptized by John, John is out there in the wilderness. He's preaching uh, a, a baptism of repentance. People are coming out. Jesus is one of the people that goes out into the wilderness to see John, to hear him preach, and to get baptized by him. And when he's baptized by him, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him, and a voice from heaven calls out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John sees that, he hears that, he's, he witnesses what's happened. In our reading 
from Matthew 11 this morning, we are at an interesting juncture in the careers of John and Jesus. John got his start before Jesus did as an itinerant preacher. John has his own disciples who follow him around, who study with him, who take care of all of his needs. Jesus is just beginning to attract attention. Jesus is teaching and healing people in Galilee, and his fame begins to spread. But John himself at that time is actually in jail. And John is in jail because he has rebuked, probably publicly, probably on Facebook, the king of Israel, Herod, Antipas is the king of Israel. Herod has divorced his wife and he's married another woman named Herodias who turns out to be the wife of his brother. I mean, it's something very twisted going on here. And John says to him, it's not okay. You may be king, but no, you cannot leave your wife and marry this other woman. What you're doing is wrong. You're violating the law of God. And even if you are king, even if you are powerful and can get away with it, it's still not right. Well, he's braver than I am. It gets him thrown into jail. And while he's in jail... John hears about what's going on with Jesus. He hears about the crowds and about the teaching and about the miracles. And so John sends word by means of his disciples. John sends a delegation of his disciples to Jesus to ask the big question. Are you the one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? I mean, because Israel's been waiting for hundreds of years. There's been this anticipation that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and return to the throne of David and restore the fortunes of the kingdom. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Well, Jesus, as he often does, answers rather mysteriously, And then he turns to the crowd who have overheard this conversation and he begins to talk about John the baptizer. They all know John, of course. John is famous. John is probably more famous than Jesus at this point in his career. The one career is declining, the other one is taking off. These are people who have gone out into the wilderness and have heard him preaching. Many of the people that Jesus is now speaking to are people that John has probably baptized. And Jesus says to this crowd, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Like, what were you expecting? Were you expecting a reed shaken in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? Those who wear soft clothes are not in the wilderness, they're in the king's house. Let me translate this for you. When you went to see John, when you traveled out 
into the boondocks where there is no mall and no Starbucks and no Uber Eats, what did you expect to find? Were you looking for some kind of limp wrist weakling? Were you hoping to find some dandy in a designer silk suit? Were you expecting a popinjay with a million dollars worth of bling hanging around his neck and a Rolls Royce out at the curb? It's a rhetorical question, of course. The answer is no, because that's not what a man of God looks like. John was a prophet, and the prophet was a hard man. He was a rough man. He wore homemade clothes. He ate food that he gathered in the wilderness. And if you're looking for someone in soft clothes who lounges around in the king's house, you're not looking for a prophet. If ever there was a prophet, it was John the baptizer, the last and the greatest of the prophets before the coming of the Messiah, the one prophet who had been given the honor of being foretold by Isaiah as the one who would specially prepare the way for the Christ. He was rough. He was hard. He was independent. He was uncompromised by the flattery and the gifts or the, or the money that soft words can bring. He was fearless in speaking the truth to power, even when that truth got him killed. You remember how the story ends? They cut his head off. They take a sword and they cut his head off. Well, that's the job of a prophet. And that's why a real prophet never goes looking to be a prophet. Read all of the call narratives in the Old Testament. Never once does the prophet raise his hand and say, please, oh, please, please call me. Because the life of a prophet is a hard life. And those frauds who have figured out a way to make money in the religion business, those fakers who trade the Bible for bling, they do it by giving the people what they want to hear and not by speaking the word of God. The way to attract the largest crowd is to give the people what they want. The way to attract the favor of those in power is to say the things that are flattering to the people in power. And because all of humankind is affected by the fall, what all of us want to hear is a pack of lies. Jesus said it. As clear as day, the highway to hell is big and it's packed with people. But the path to heaven is narrow and only a few will find it. The message that appeals to the largest audience is not God's message. Truth will not be determined by a popularity contest. So let's talk about the way to heaven for just a minute. 
Because Jesus says the extraordinary thing that while no human is superior to John the baptizer, that John is actually outranked. He's outclassed. He's outgunned by even the lowest person in the kingdom of heaven. There's no, there, there's no question that Jesus respects and honors his cousin John, but Jesus says that the highest of the high in human estimation, that is John, is still lower than the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. I want us to think about that. Okay, John, best of all, can't get any better. Guess what? He is lower than the lowest peon in the kingdom of heaven. We'll get around to explaining that in a second. The answer to this question is going to have to do with the difference between law and gospel. And that has to do with something about the difference between a prophet and a savior and why Jesus can't be a prophet. He must be a savior. So let's start by talking about God's law. God's law does not change. God's law actually cannot change. And God's law describes the way God wants humans to live. It tells us what we should do. It tells us what we shouldn't do. The reason God's law cannot change is because God's law reveals the character of God himself and God doesn't change. And since God doesn't change, his law doesn't change. The law shows us the things that God loves and the things that God hates. God loves kindness and mercy. He always has and he always will in every circumstance. God hates murder and lying. He always has and he always will. And he always will in every possible circumstance. If we live according to God's law, then we do the things that God loves and we avoid the things that God hates. That puts us into a harmonious relationship with the creator. Because God is holy, God not only hates sin but he hates it with such intensity that he cannot be in the presence of sinful creatures without destroying them. And that creates a problem for us because we're sinners. Under the Old Testament law, there was a system of blood sacrifices which atoned for sins, which dealt with this problem, which allowed them to enjoy fellowship with God. God constructed that system for a couple of reasons. One is to show us the seriousness of sin, that something has to die to take care of it, but also to point us forward to the Messiah who would become the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of the church. When we live according to God's law, our lives are righteous. We do the right things. We live the right way. We call that righteousness. But in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisee and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
No one will enter the kingdom of heaven if their righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the keepers of the law of the Pharisees. Pharisees were very careful about following the law. Teachers of the law were experts in how to do the right thing, how to avoid the wrong thing. How in the world can our righteousness exceed that? And what about John the baptizer, the prophet of the law, who was out there in the wilderness calling people to repentance? If we expect to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness is going to have to exceed the righteousness of all of those people. Why is that the case? Why does Jesus say that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, the simple answer is that the most righteous person, John the baptizer maybe, the best keeper of the law still sins. And the person who says that he does not sin is a liar. And the standard for entering heaven is not pretty good or better than average or not as bad as my neighbor. The standard for being in the presence of the perfectly holy and powerful God and the creator of the universe, the standard for entering the kingdom of heaven is perfection. God does not grade on a curve. I do, but God doesn't. So what is our hope? If even the best keepers of the law failed to make the grade, what chance do I have if even a Pharisee is not good enough? Well, that's why we don't need a prophet. We need a savior. My hope is Christ. My only chance for salvation is the shed blood of Christ. Here's how Paul explains it. This is in Romans chapter 3. Very familiar passage. Many of you have this passage memorized. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Apart from the law. This righteousness, the one that's apart from the law, is given. Notice how we get it. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. There is a righteousness of the law. If you follow the law, you will do the right thing. It's good to do the right thing. That's what John preached. Here's the law of God. Follow it. There's nothing wrong with that. That is to be commended. John prepared the way for the Messiah by preaching that message because one of the effects of that message, if we take the law seriously, and unfortunately as a culture we do not take the law seriously enough, but if we take the law seriously, we quickly realize we can't accomplish it in ourselves. We all sin. And if the standard of salvation is perfection, and if all have sinned, it seems like we're all doomed. That is, we're all doomed unless God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. 
Listen to Paul. This righteousness is given. It's not accomplished. It's not performed. It's not purchased through blood, sweat, and tears. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that includes sinners like me and sinners like you. That's the gospel in a nutshell. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are given a righteousness that we did not accomplish on our own. And that righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. That righteousness exceeds the righteousness of John the baptizer. And that righteousness is precisely what is required to get into the kingdom of heaven. Here's the weird thing. People hate that gospel. And the reason they hate that gospel is because we just can't believe that we can get something for nothing. Or we want to claim that we have done it ourselves by our own efforts. It's sort of like winning the lottery. If you win a pot of money, and by the way, I hope none of you play the lottery. All of those, if you, instead of buying a ticket, put it in the plate, okay? Treasures in heaven, rather than tax to Harrisburg. Don't play the lottery. But if you were to win the lottery, get a big old billion dollar payout, you got a big pot of money, you're living in luxury, you've won the lottery, but you know what? You would really like people to think that your riches were the result of your smarts or your hard work. It would be embarrassing to be a lottery billionaire. Well, here's the tough news. If you are righteous in the sight of God, if you have the righteousness that's required for you to get to heaven, then that righteousness was given to you and you did not earn it. It's very humbling to receive that kind of gift. It's very humbling to say, I owe it, I owe it all to someone else because I couldn't do it by myself. I tried. I tried for a while to be righteous, and I discovered every time I tried, I just failed. But you know, then there was someone else, his name was Jesus, and he just gave me this righteousness. Okay? It's a free gift. Two things happen when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. One is all your garbage disappears. All of your sins are wiped out. Okay? The death on the cross pays the price of sin. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice and his blood is so precious that his blood alone can pay for the sins of everyone in the church. That's one thing. Your negative stuff gets wiped out. But here's the other, the other good part of it. All of Jesus' righteousness, his perfect record gets credited to you. So you get rid of the negative and you get all of the positive by faith in Jesus Christ. And you don't do any of it. I want to close with a familiar story that Jesus tells of a Pharisee and a tax collector. It kind of bothers me that we beat up on the Pharisees so much because they were actually very good people. 
Okay, I, th I mean, I think we need to respect them. They were earnest. Many of the early Christians had come out of the ranks of the Pharisees, so I, I want to be careful that we don't dismiss them as religious frauds. But here's the story that Jesus tells. This is in Luke chapter 18. You all know this story. Jesus also told this parable to someone who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Meanwhile, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this tax collector went home justified rather than the Pharisee. For us to see the kingdom of heaven, we're going to have to abase ourselves and recognize that we're sinners. John the baptizer was the greatest of all the prophets. He called people to follow the law of God. He called people to repent of their sins. He was given the privilege of being the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. But the righteousness of the law will not get you to heaven. The baptism of John was not a baptism of salvation, but it was one step on the way. We need to repent we need to recognize that we have a problem, that God's law, that God is serious about his law, and that oh, I haven't been living according to it. And to regret that and to repent of it, but we also, in addition to our repentance, need to have faith in Jesus Christ. We need to believe that Jesus is who he said that he was. He's not a prophet. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and we receive that. We, it's a gift to us. We don't work for it, and we can receive that by faith in Jesus Christ. The way is wide that leads to death. And the way is narrow that leads to life. Not my words. Those are the words of Jesus. And the narrow way is faith in Jesus Christ. The hard thing about entering that narrow way, the reason it's so tight and so hard to get through is you have to be willing to say, and this is very hard for us Americans, you have to be willing to say, I, I just can't do this. I can't do it by myself. I'm, I'm not up to the task. You have to be willing to say that. You have to admit that you are not righteous enough to merit God's favor. And then you enter the way. And I'll tell you what, the biggest scumbag who has entered that way 
is greater than the best keeper of the law. Okay? The biggest scumbag who managed to have faith in Jesus Christ is more righteous than John the baptizer because he now has a perfect righteousness. He has the righteousness of Christ. Where are you? Are you still trying to do it on your own? Are you still trying to be good enough to get to heaven? If you're doing it on your own, you're going to miss the way. All right? It's a free gift, and I understand the problem of pride. I get it. It's my biggest sin. I get it. But to enter into that way, you've got to be willing to say, I can't do this myself. We're preparing for the coming of Christmas. We're preparing for the coming of Christ. Are you prepared to receive Christ into your life today? Are you ready to welcome him as the Lord of your life? Are you ready for him to take away your sins and to give you the perfect righteousness? Pray with me. Father God, we honor you and we bless your name and we thank you for your law which shows us your heart, which shows us the things that you love and the things that you hate. And we thank you for Brother John and for his faithful witness to your law. We thank you for his brave and hard preaching, his calling self-satisfied people like us to repentance. Thank you that he prepared the way. But Father God, above all else, we thank you for Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he didn't only preach to us, but he also died for us so that our sins could be forgiven. We ask this morning that you would give us the faith to cling to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.